0: the last scene of a movie or the last chapter of a book. When you get to that last scene or that last chapter, the author's communicating something very important. It's leaving, it's like he he or she wants to leave you with an impression of something as kind of a last note. So when you come to the end of the book of Genesis, so I can remind you that book begins with in the beginning God, what is the last thing that is going to be left with that book? A book that begins with, let there be light, and there was light. How will that book close? So Moses is the human author with the Holy Spirit's guidance. And and he closes out Genesis in a very significant way. So we're going to be reading in Genesis 49 and 50 of exactly how this first book of our Bible closes. For several weeks, we've been leaning into the story, story of Joseph, but really by extension, it's the story of his brothers and his father. The story, is, as we've noted multiple times, is not a straight line. It's not a straight line. It, it really goes all over the place. And Scripture records so much about the life of Joseph and really the life of this entire family and it's been good for us. I hope you found that as we've read these ancient words, I hope you found an intense relevance and meaning for you today, as ancient as they are, God speaks, God's still speaking today. The passage we're going to look at today brings us to the end of the earthly life of Jacob, who's kind of the father in this scenario. And we're also going to read about the end of the earthly life of Joseph. Fair warning, I don't pretend like when we're talking about uh, the last days of someone, I don't pretend that it will produce a lot of things that will be the trendy quote of the day on Instagram or Facebook. I I don't anticipate actually a lot of quick fixes coming out of this time in God's Word. There's no like life hacks I'm going to leave you with to take on, on your way today, but I actually think we're going to spend some time thinking about what matters. And I, I would guess by, by your presence in this room, you're more interested in things that are eternal than things that are trendy, things that are going to last a long time. And we're actually going to take a view, I think it's helpful sometimes to just take a view from the end. So we are going to look at the end of Jacob's life, the end of Joseph's life, because sometimes at the end, You may be going, Curtis, I I sure hope I'm not anywhere close to the end. And I I hope that as well. You might be in your teens, in your 20s, 30s, 40s, 60s. I mean, you might be a long way from this being your story. But sometimes it's really, really helpful to get a picture of the end. And then you begin to go, okay, how do I interpret what I'm going through right now, which may be a really, really hard season in light of the end? How do I how do I process things? How do I how do I think about things? How do I handle the pressure and the stress? And where's the relief and where's the hope? And what should I focus on? Even when I know I'm not anywhere near the end. And I think actually spending a little bit of time looking at the end of someone's life will give you some help today. Genesis 49 and 50 remind us of some important things. They are helpful in thinking, I mean frankly, they're helpful in thinking of how to die well. But I also think like You can live well when you know how to die well, and so we're going to spend a little bit of time in the end of the life of Jacob. So if you have your Bibles, Genesis 49 and verse 29. By the way, I'm so grateful just for the attention that I feel like collectively as a church family we've given to God's Word throughout the last several months in Genesis. I'm grateful for your walking with me. I feel like this series has been very, very good for my own heart. I'm grateful that it's been helpful to many of you as we've we've dug in scripture. Verse 29 says, "'Then Jacob commanded his sons and said to them, "'I am to be gathered to my people. "'So would you bury me with my fathers in the cave "'that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, "'in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, "'to the east of Mamre in the land of Canaan, "'which Abram bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite, to possess as a burying place. So there they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife, and there I buried Leah, Jacob says. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. And when Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into his bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Then Joseph fell on his father's face, and he wept over him, and he kissed him. Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, if now I found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, my father made me swear, saying, I'm about to die in my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan, you shall bury me there. So, Pharaoh, please let me go up and bury my father, and then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So, Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a great and grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atade, they said, This is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore, the place was named Abel Mizraim. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan, buried him in the cave of the field of Me- Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with a field from Ephron the Hittite to possess it as a burying place. And after he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. Thank you for listening the story as Jacob died and the intricacies of the burial and entire family moving across the Middle East to go to this specific place this place where Abraham and Sarah were buried, Isaac and Rebekah and Leah had been buried. This land wasn't just any random spot. It's the very first place that the people of Israel owned in the promised land. And it's also just such a significant place because it was connected to promises. It's not just any random spot. It's not just any cemetery. But this spot was connected to promises that had been made for generations to this family. Notice, if you will, the the weeks of mourning did you see that several references to like there was a period here of mourning and a period of here of grieving and this isn't the main point by a long shot but I think we need to be reminded that it's sometimes it takes time to absorb the grief of loss to feel this thing of death sometimes it's okay not to be okay and we have to give the space, and, and we have to be careful not to insinuate that someone just needs to get over it. Like, come on, let's move on with life. Wait a minute, wait a minute. This is even a reminder that, like, sometimes this takes time, and, and one of the ministries you can have is to walk with people in their grief and communicate love at a thoughtful time in a thoughtful way. I'm just grateful for the incidental reminder, like, they're stopping and having a period of mourning and sadness, which is right. It's, it's right that they do that. But I I, want to, again, turn our attention to this end of Genesis, the amazing book here, and get a window into a life. And there's actually just two kind of two features of the way this last chapter goes down that I want us to really grab a hold of today. And so through the life of Joseph, I think we're going to see a life of, and here's the first one I want to make sure we grab, is a life of grace in the present. So that's exactly what Joseph did. He lived a life of grace in the present, and so I want us to realize that even as they had to deal with some of the worst things imaginable, and then uh, in a moment we'll look at how he not only had grace in the present but confidence for the future. But but really, let's focus on that grace in the present. So the family, like the whole family of Israel, has come back to Egypt, and we left them off in verse 14. And the story is so human because of what the brothers say next. Like this is exactly like it's not that hard to imagine how this goes. So. Jacob has died. The brothers are there with Joseph, and the first thing that goes through their mind in verse 15, can, can you see it there with me? Verse 15, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it, it may be that Joseph will hate us, strong word, and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him So they sent a message to Joseph saying, you know, dad gave this command before he died. So let's make sure Joseph hears this. Like, dad said, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin. Remember that time when dad was telling us about that? Remember, like, because they did evil to you. So yeah, Joseph, would you please do that? And, And all like humor aside, I don't even know, did Jacob even have that conversation with the brothers? I don't know. Are they just pulling it out? I, scripture doesn't record that they had this conversation before, but the brothers are sure wanting, for whatever reason, to try to, try to ascertain, like, what is, what is Joseph's opinion of them now? And they're pleading. They're in a very vulnerable spot. I think we all can appreciate the vulnerabilities. What Joseph says and does next is, frankly, amazing to me because they're just throwing themselves on the mercy of Joseph. They really... I mean, the best they can do is like, dear old dad is watching in heaven, and he'll see because he, you know, this is about all they have. They have no leverage in here. The only leverage they have, they're playing. And yet it says Joseph's response on this is that he weeps. He gets very emotional when they spoke to him. And his brothers kind of in that last Last time we see this picture of them bowing down, here they are once again. Remember Joseph dreamed about this. His brothers came down and they bowed before him and they said, behold, we're we're your servants. But take good note, I think this is the whole summary of the story of Joseph in, in verses 19 and 20. Joseph said to them, do not fear. Guys, you don't have to be afraid, for am I in the place of God? I don't think I'm God here. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And Joseph comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So what I said is I I do think Joseph gives us a view of how to have grace In the present, it speaks volumes. By the way, you do know Joseph has already communicated, I forgive you, he's already done that. And yet, here he's doing it again. Why does he have to do it again? I think he has to do it again. I think we all know why he has to do it again because we just sometimes don't believe this is the way it's going to go. We believe, we have a hard time believing in grace. We actually believe pretty easily that you get what you deserve. That just seems how I'm wired. You do this and you get this, and yet then the brothers believe this. Maybe he's going to hate us. Maybe he never got past this. Maybe he pretended just to like make things better, but maybe maybe it won't happen. Can someone really forgive us? I mean, I, I'm really, really sorry, but will they ever forgive me for it? How do I make up for that? And maybe when we translate that into our relationship with God, I mean, we're talking about things we deserve, things we don't deserve, but man, it's hard sometimes to think after all I've done, after everything that God knows that I've done. Could he, could he really forgive me? Could he really treat me in that way? Could he really offer forgiveness? Or, I mean, I don't believe in karma. I guess not really. But then you kind of think like, or do I really functionally believe in some form of that? Or like, yeah, you do that and it's going to come back and get you. Do we believe in that? Or do we believe, no, grace could be this amazing I was listening to an interview of a coach, a college basketball coach, appropriately enough this time of year, and he was talking about, and it just gave a window into this very thing, he was talking about when, when one of his players, and it seems like a great coach with a, just a great heart, he said, when one of my coaches, when one of my players messes up, like turns the ball over or misses a shot, what I do is I leave them in for a few more plays, and what we start yelling from the bench is, get it back, get it back, get it back. And that helps motivate the person to know I can like atone for this. I, I know I messed up, but I know I can get it back. I can do something to make it better. And Maybe that will help set things right. And oh, that may be a great coaching philosophy, and motivational technique. And yet, if we transfer that kind of thing into our relationship with God where we just think, well, I messed up again, I got to get it back. Got to earn that favor again. I'm telling you, it's, a, it's worse than a dead-end street. It's worse than being on a spiritual treadmill that you never can get off. It's worse than that. If all you've got is like, well, I guess I'll just try to earn that favor again. But Joseph lives a life just filled with grace, immersed in grace, a life that knows God, And when you know grace that well, you're able to view things a little bit differently as Joseph did. Notice, I mean, he weeps before them. Notice his words, his actions, even his emotions. He weeps before them. Verse 17, two times. Verse 19, verse 21. He says, you don't have to be afraid. Verse 19, he reminds them, like, I'm not God. I don't have the right to move and act in these scenarios. There's one God. I'm not God. He says in verse 21, he even guaranteed provisions for their their kids, which if you know ancient culture, like, it's kind of eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, you come after me. But they're like, when it just became unhinged, it's like, you come after me, I'll go after your kids and you. We'll do more than settle the score. And now Joseph says, not only am I going to take care of you, but I'm going to take care of your kids. And any parent in here knows, like, you take care of my kids, I am loyal to you for a long, long time. And that's exactly what Joseph is telling his brothers. Why? He didn't have to do this. But Joseph is dealing in grace. He adopted a certain perspective. I don't think it was that quick and that easy. Much like I remember the foundation of this building and the steel going up. It took like a long time, it seemed like, for the foundation and the steel. Disproportionately long for that foundation. But it made this building sturdy. The foundation for this kind of thinking may take a while, but what Joseph had is he had this perspective, and I I really don't know exactly how to describe it except for he has an experience, his life, but there's like two stories that are running down the same track. I feel like that's exactly the way Joseph is looking at things. It actually may be a helpful way for you to look at things. So here's the dual track. On, On one hand, this story, we could easily say that's an evil story that's exactly the word Joseph uses. You meant it for evil. So, humanly speaking, this is a very evil story, and you may be living out the consequences of one of those evil stories right now. This thing that just seems awful, and you can name it, and you can feel it, and it can be wrong, and you can appreciate all the wrongness about it. As a matter of fact, Joseph isn't, like, covering over that. He's not even saying to the, the brothers, I know you had, like, the best of intentions, but my goodness, guys, it got out of hand. Like, he doesn't say that. He knows their motives. You intended it for evil, so it, we, we don't have to cover up. He, he can acknowledge, like, he, he has been a victim in this scenario. He's a victim of injustice and pain. No excusing, no minimizing. That is an evil story that has happened that we read in the end of Genesis, but there is another story in his primary identity, and all of this has, has never really been just a victim. I mean, he is, but it's not really the primary identity, because there's another story, just as this evil story is being written. There's another story, and it's actually called a good story. You meant it for evil, but God intended this for good. It's interesting to me, in the book of Genesis especially, we know how Genesis starts. God creates something, and He says what? It's good, and He creates something else, and He says it's good, and when He's done with His creation, He says it's very good, and here we have at the end of Genesis, After all the brokenness of the world, we have him one more time writing a good story. You intended it for evil, but God was working this out for good. This really is redeeming. This is really God, not just saying like there's some bad things, but then there were some good things and kind of, I guess it outweighs it. That's actually not what he's saying. He's saying this very evil thing, God overruled it. God took the evil thing. And he turned it and made it the exact opposite. He made it a good thing. This is the power of God. This is the control of God. This is the authority of God that can take things that are are awful. And he can actually use those things in this fallen world and change them. Do, Do we see that, that God uses even evil intentions and turns it? Like I will say, that is not an easy perspective. That is not a perspective that I'm just hardwired to see. That takes a a walk of faith. But even as Joseph calls out, like, it's not even just, I want you to see this theoretically or in, like, theology book page, you know, 95, and let me highlight this. It's actually, like, look at the family, guys. Look at the kids. We all could be just wiped out with a famine. But now you're being taken care of. Now your little ones are going to be taken care of. This is why Joseph could dispense grace. This is why Joseph could forgive. He had a very different perspective. Do you live with this sort of grace? Do you extend this sort of grace? Do you extend it easily? Naturally? Reluctantly? At all? Do we? The bumps, the bruises, the nightmares, the anxiety, the depression that we feel. Or do we see in all of that, is our heart sensitive enough to see a double story? Being written even in the pain. Who helps you walk through that? I ask that because I think sometimes the story seems so dark and so evil and so twisted and such a dead end and like zero hope, who's going to be the one? that at least comes alongside you and maybe even just prays for you and sits with you. I mean, who is that person? That's why, like, you need those sort of vulnerable, transparent relationships. And if you don't have them now, well, today's the the day where you say, Lord, bring those into my life because this life is too painful to just think me and my brain and my feelings are going to figure all this out. The Spirit gave you the church with all the gifts of the body, all the experiences to help walk us through difficulty like this. We have a community. So grace, I mean, Joseph, I mean, this is amazing. He is living with grace, not revenge and bitterness, not victimization, but he's living with grace in the present and can acknowledge all that was done and also extend grace. But I also, I don't want us just to hear grace in the present. I also want us to have confidence for the future. So Joseph Let's keep reading, because it says in verse 22, picking back up on his life, Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house, and Joseph lived 110 years. He saw Ephraim's children, that's his son of the third generation. The children also of Makir, the son of Manasseh, his other son, were counted as Joseph's son, Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you And God will bring you up out of the land to the land that he swore to Abraham and Isaac and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. These are serious moments, aren't they? But we see in this a confidence for the future. Serious moments when you start saying like, let's call the family in. I've been a part of those conversations. You probably have as well. Those are serious moments, and Joseph recognizes something very significant that I just want us to make sure we see and feel today, and that is Joseph recognizes and even shares that as he is dying, he says this family will not die, and this story that God is writing, even as I die, is not done. So I may move off the scene, and my earthly days may be done. But he, he mentions even his bones being carried up. I, mean, I don't think this is superstitious. God had made promises, and he is so in tune with those promises in the land and generations and descendants. Like, It's enough for him to say, I have such a confidence that I want my body back in the land of promise, and I want you to promise me that will happen. Joseph says, we have a God. Among this family, he looks at his probably nieces and nephews, and he says, we have a, we have a God who has plans and purposes that definitely encompass our lifetime. They encompass the decade, uh, our, our teenage years, and they are, are God's plans mean something for your 20s and your 30s, your 50s and your 70s and your 80s and yet there is something that actually even goes beyond this earthly life however many days that god gives us he says i want you to take my bones out of this place because i believe god is going to visit you and god does you read exodus you read leviticus numbers deuteronomy and to joshua and you read god visits it's a few chapters from this in the next book of the bible god visits moses with the burning bush And God visits a whole crowd of Israelites standing at the Red Sea. And God visits with a a fire to guide them and a cloud to guide them. And God visits on Mount Sinai with ten words that they're to live by. And when they're hungry in the wilderness, they cry out to God. And God visits them with food. And when they're thirsty and they don't know what they're going to drink in the wilderness, God visits them with something to drink, and God ultimately visits them by bringing them into the land of Canaan, bringing them into the promised land. God visits them. But Joseph's words are like pushing them, like, do you believe this or do you not? And if we believe this, then you can embalm me, you can put me in a coffin, but please make sure I'm back in the promised land because God's not done with his family. I, I love it. I I I love how the story of Joseph ends with a certain amount of resolution. It says in verse 26, so Joseph died being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. And that is the way to live right, and that is the way to die right. But I'm I'm grateful as like, as satisfying as it feels for Joseph to live right and die right, there's something more. And that happens in Exodus 13. It says when the Israelites left the land of Egypt, It's like unfinished business here. Moses Moses took the bones of Joseph with him because Joseph had made the Israelites, like what, 300, 400 years before, because Joseph had made the Israelites swear a solemn oath saying, God will certainly come to your aid and you must take my bones with you from this place. I'm stuck on this theme of God visiting, God visiting, God coming to our rescue, God God reminding us, and our story's not done, even if our earthly life is done, and His story surely is not done. Because as much as I could tell you God visited burning bush and Mount Sinai, there is another way in which God visited. And the way John describes it is, like He made, God made His dwelling in human flesh. You know how He ultimately visited? Oh, with an earthly father named Joseph. But Jesus came in the flesh, born in the very land that Jacob and Joseph couldn't talk about enough, like, get us back to that land. And he was born, and much like the story of Joseph, Jesus, Jesus visited, like, humanity, this earthly world that we live in. Just like Joseph, he was rejected by his brothers. Just like Joseph, he was stripped of his garments. Just like Joseph, he was condemned on false charges. Jesus, just like Joseph, was forsaken by everyone who should have helped him. Jesus tasted death. And then we're going to celebrate on Easter. He rose from the dead. And even, do you, know, do you remember what he did after he rose from the dead? He visited, he visited Mary and, and, and Peter, and he visited Thomas a week later, and it says hundreds of others. And then there is that day that Scripture points us to, of when Jesus visits again. When he comes to this earth, again, God visiting his people once again to set everything right, to completely restore and heal this broken world. The vision of Joseph is something I can so appreciate because Joseph is, like, content, but he's waiting. Even as he dies, it's like not everything is tied up for Joseph. He's still waiting on something. And for all the things that I appreciate about this world, for all the ways I look at my life and go, I've been blessed here and there and here and there I am waiting for a future visit of the Lord to take me to a new place, the new heavens and the new earth. I am eagerly awaiting that. I am eagerly awaiting a new body that won't feel everything that this earthly body feels. I'm waiting for new body for all the people that I love deeply who've gone to meet with the Lord already. And I look forward most to what John twenty-one and John four, or Revelation twenty-one and John fourteen talk about. What I look forward to the most, what I'm really waiting for for the most, is to see Jesus face to face, no longer, no longer just even my imagination or my great confidence, but like eyeball to eyeball, knowing that's the one, that's the one I've been waiting for. That's the one I've been living for. He's the one that I I, I wanted my life to, to show he's worthy. He's the one that showed me the grace when I didn't deserve it. I don't know how many days the Lord might give any of us, but I want to live with such confidence in the future that it shapes me to be a person of grace in the present so that any encounter with our lives are just filled with undeserved favor because this one that we are waiting for, we're going to see him again and he is worth living for. I hope you have that hope. Let me pray. Lord, give us uh, insight into this as we close the story of Joseph. Give us perspective for the person that is In the middle of a very evil story, oh Lord, by your power, I pray that you would turn the evil story into a story for good, and not only do that, but just help us see how you're doing that. That would be such a, a benefit to our own faith. Father, I thank you for the promises of your son, and we look forward to the day where we see him. Until then, keep our eyes fixed on him in the end so that we live well and live with grace in the present. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.